Jesus, I thank you for this time. Lord God, use me uh, to speak your words, Lord Jesus. I pray that you'd speak directly into the lives of the people who are hearing this, Lord God. I pray that as your conviction comes upon people, Lord God, that they would not ignore it uh, or forget it, Lord, but they would receive it um, as correction from you, Lord God. And if they are inspired and encouraged by this word, Lord God, I pray that they would see it as something from you, Lord. Touch your people today. Uh, Correct us, Lord God. Rebuke us. Encourage us. All those things that we need from a good, good father. In your holy name, Lord. Amen. All right, so we're in the book of Hebrews chapter 7 right now, and let me catch you up in chapter 7 of Hebrews. Um, the author of Hebrews is building a case through chapter 7 why Jesus is the ultimate high priest and spiritual leader by comparing him uh, to examples of priesthood that they already understood already. So um, the people that uh, the author is talking to, a lot of them were Jews that are now converted to being Christians, believing that Jesus is the Messiah. And there's also some Gentiles too. But think about your modern day um, experience that even people who aren't Christians know about Christian traditions. If you ask somebody what Christmas is about, they know that's when Jesus was born. They sing the songs. They know the everything. So when the author here is talking to them, he's trying to draw a strong comparison between what they already know and appreciate and how he's trying to show that Jesus is even greater than that. Um, they're all familiar with the laws of Moses and the Levitical priesthood. Uh, they know about Father Abraham. They all know that they're all his children. These are revered and honored men, probably the most in their history. Abraham, Moses, these are the big hitters, okay? They know what's going on. Um, but then he tells them that there's a priest that's even greater than those priests and leaders that they already know and give great honor to. And he tells them about Melchizedek. And we've been, if, if you've been listening through Wednesdays, you've been hearing a lot of these themes. But I just want to catch you up a little bit for before my verses. So Melchizedek's described as the king of justice, the king of peace, the high priest of God most high. There's no record of his beginning or end, so his priesthood remains forever. That's how he's described in the Bible. Now, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, who, uh, and then um, Abraham was given a blessing by Melchizedek. The one who has the power to bless is greater than the one being blessed. It's kind of a general rule throughout the Bible. Now, the Jews pay a tithe to the Levites, which is the priesthood. And they pay a tithe to someone who's even with even more spiritual authority, Melchizedek, by proxy through the father Abraham who predates the law. Do you see how this is working? He's building the case that these priests, even the high priests that you currently know of, pay honor to Melchizedek, this priest that's outside of the Levitical priesthood, through their father Abraham, who is basically all of their father. So he's building this case for even greater than Abraham, even greater than the priesthood that Moses laid down through the tribe of Levi, even greater than all that was Melchizedek. Now, Jesus is described as being the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Do you see why that's important now? Because if you don't know who Melchizedek is, you don't understand why he's even bringing it up that Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek. This is an illustration to show that Jesus is greater than all those other that came before him as well and worthy of the, all that honor. Jesus is the king of justice and peace. He has no beginning and no end. And because Jesus lives forever, his priesthood remains forever. Hebrews chapter 9 verses 19 and 20. 
This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is greater than the Levite priesthood. Even though they were, even though all the Levites were chosen by God to be the priests, they couldn't really fulfill the requirements of the sacrificial system because they were only human. And we'll get into that a little bit tonight. Humans are inherently flawed and sinful. I'm pretty sure you know that one. So you know that part. The high priest even needed an off, to offer sacrifices for himself as well as for the people. It's never enough to truly pray, pay the price for sin. Uh, our verses today are Hebrews chapter 7, 26 through 28. And it says this. For such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, meaning innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those, as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, um, first for his own sin and then for the people's. For he did this once and for all when he offered himself up. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. My first point is this. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Jesus is our perfect high priest. Verse 26 says again, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, innocent, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. The high priest was the top spiritual authority to all the people. The high priest is more of an authority than the king or the rulers or the elders. He's the high priest. He's the guy. He speaks for God. God speaks through him. This is how it works. He's the only one who gets to go in and be in the presence of these holy things. So he's above all. That's his job. It includes being responsible for all the subordinate priests. Because you got to, I mean, if you're in charge and you uh, are the boss of stuff, you always got other people that, you know, report to you. Because otherwise, you know, what would be the point, right? I mean, it, being the boss and getting paid the big bucks means you have to do all the paperwork. So I'm sure the high priest is up there like, oh, I got to do the reports for all these subordinate priests. He oversees all the ceremonies, all the sacrificial offerings. He does the interceding on behalf of the people with God. The high priest uh, was the connection point between a holy God and sinful man. Because see, at this time, a, a sinful man cannot be in the presence of a holy God without being cleansed. I think you just burst into flames. I may be reading, like, that may be in the New Living Translation. But I think you burst into flames... Or maybe you just drop dead. <laughs> One or the other. It's not good. You can't do it. That's the whole point. Is you just can't do that kind of stuff. Uh, the high priest was a connection point. He, uh, he gave, uh, um, uh, the, the sacrifices on, on behalf of himself and as the people. But his most important responsibility was to conduct the service once a year on the day of atonement. Um, only he was allowed to enter the most holy place behind the veil to stand before God. So basically how this works was he, uh, the high priest once a year, um, because he can't do it all the time. It's like a, a big deal that he's going to come between the inner holies. There's a, there's a temple and there's the inner part and there's a veil. And then inside that part where nobody can go except for the high priest once a year, 
uh, is the inner holy of holies, and that's where God dwells. His thrones in there, the arks in there, all this great stuff, that's where it's at right there. And so on the day of atonement, the high priest would take a, a, an offering. It's a blood offering. I don't want to go into all the details. It's, I mean, if you want to read Leviticus, you can, but we just don't have time to get in on It's very detailed. It's interesting, though, because if you think about it, the fact that it is so extremely detailed how this whole process works just lends to the fact that it's very, very, very important to them. It was very important to God to lay down exactly specifically how this would work because it's important. It's an important thing that he's trying to accomplish. So basically the high priest would uh, kill this uh, perfect unblemished bull and then take that blood and sprinkle it across the veil, sprinkle it across the threshold and sprinkle it in for himself to forgive his own sins knowingly and that he committed knowingly and unknowingly. And then after he's clean, then he hurry ups and kills another bull and takes that blood and sprinkles it in and sprinkles it on the, in the inner, on the mercy seat to have forgiveness for the people, for their sins that they committed knowingly and unknowingly. So if he wasn't cleansed first, he can't go in there. He's going to die. That's how it's going to work. So it's a very, very important thing, a very big deal that he does as, as part of his duties. He's the only one who can do this, the high priest. He did this to make atonement and gain forgiveness for himself and for the people, the sins they committed. The high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year and only with the blood. Now, Jesus is our perfect high priest. That's what the Bible says. He's undefiled. He's innocent. He deserves even more respect and honor than any priest or leader that we know of. Because he's sinless, he can enter into the holies of holies at any time. And he's our connection to a holy God. So because Jesus Christ died on the cross and his blood was shed, he, he uh, spread that blood on the mercy seat for our forgiveness. He is the high priest. Now he has done this. Now we are a connection point. Now he is connected between a holy, holy God and sinful man. His blood has covered our sins and we are covered. Now we can actually enter the holy of holies and commune with God himself through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why he's the high priest. John chapter 14 verse 6 says, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a basic foundational premise of Christianity. Jesus and Christianity. If you talk to anybody who displays a faith or talks about a faith or talks about a premise of the faith where this is not the absolute 100% ground floor truth, that is heresy and that's not Christianity. Now, the reality is I could call this this or the stage or whatever. I could call it whatever I want to call it. And if I call it that enough, you're going to start calling it that too. But it doesn't make it that, right? I could call this, I don't know, a fruit stand. And I could call it every week. Pretty soon you're going to be, you guys are going to be saying like, no, no, no. When he's on the stage with a fruit stand, are you like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. So I could call it whatever, whatever you want. You can call whatever religion you want Christianity, but it's not Christianity unless Jesus is the only way, the only truth, and the only life. There is no other way to go to heaven except through Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. He has broken down this wall of separation. He has bridged the gap so that we can have communion with a holy, holy God. 
Jesus sprinkled his own blood on the mercy seat. He died on the cross. He's the final sacrifice for sin. That's why we're not up here once a year killing a bunch of animals and sprinkling blood. That was it. It's done. Your religion no longer has to involve killing animals and messing around with its blood. We're done with that. Jesus did it once and for all. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11 through 13 says, But Christ came as high priest of the good things that have um, have come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats or calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Because Jesus died on the cross, we have forgiveness of sins. We're born again. We have a direct connection. He is our high priest. My second point is this. Jesus is the final sacrifice for sin. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 27. Jesus, our high priest, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices for um, uh, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Old Testament sacrifices were intended uh, to signify more than just paying homage to God. It wasn't just a, an honoring thing. We give him honor. Uh, that's not what the, the thing was. The significance was trying to achieve forgiveness and make amends for sin. It wasn't just something they did to, to be excited about God. It just wasn't a ceremony. It was something they did because they're trying to please God and obtain his forgiveness. What they're doing is they're taking this animal and they're offering it as a substitute for themselves. As they kill this animal and sprinkle its blood, it's a substitute for their own death to sin and gives them a chance to be forgiven again. Because the wages of sin are death. Wages is something you've earned. Like your wages at your job. That's what you earn. Your life, your behavior, your sins have earned you death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6 verse 23. Do you see the, the, the uh, dichotomy there? You've earned death by your work. But God gives you a gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. You can't earn that. The animal being killed is a substitute. It's an intermediary. Intermediary. It's paying the price for our sin. Instead of us paying for it, it's paying for it. Now the person offering the sacrifice is fully aware that they are seeking restoration for the sins that they have committed. And their sacrifice must be acceptable to God. That means that as you come to make this offering, you know full well what you're doing and why. And you don't bring God your leftovers. You can see Jesus get all upset about that when they're trying to bring God uh, their second best in an offering. Because it's not about going through the ritual. It's not about saying the right things. It's not about performing the right behaviors. It's about the heart condition within it. They bring their best and give that to God. That's the whole point. If you were to bring your worst and give it to God, what's the? are you just trying to just make it above the line? I, I, I used to work with a guy. Oh, man, I'm so glad he retired. He was a bad influence. I worked with a guy, and the tagline on his on his email, like, like you know, you make a signature for your email, and you're supposed to say, like, your name, your rank, maybe your phone number. His signature said, striving to achieve 100% of the minimum. 
It was on his emails. How do you let that stuff go? How, do, how does the boss not see that and pull that guy aside and be like, well, you got to have a talk. Anyways, my point is when you come to God, you can't be striving for a hundred percent of the minimum. You can't be saying so-and-so was able to make this sacrifice. If I make this sacrifice, I'll be good. You can't save it that way. This is an atonement for sin. It's a big deal. It should, we should be considering it a big deal that there's an atonement for our sins. It's dead serious. Jesus died for it. If you think about it that way, if you think about the atonement that it takes for your sins, if you think about the sacrifice that needed to be made, if you think about the wages of your sin, uh, uh, you earn death, but now you realize that it's Jesus who had to die for it. I remember when I was at a boot camp, one of the fun things they used to do at Marine Corps boot camp is that um, they, and I was convinced that it was, it was probably on the list of things to do for the day. They would find something you did wrong and punish you for it. You'd have to do push-ups or jumping jacks or something. They'd find it and then they'd punish you for it. So if you needed special attention and punishing you for it wasn't working, then they'd punish everybody around you for it. So then I remember this one guy, oh man, recruit Palmer. I, I, I really wish I could figure out what happened to him later. It'd be interesting to know what he does now in his life because then, man, he just could not get it. And he would always do these selfish things and get in trouble. And then they would punish everybody else for it. And they just, they'd say freeze. And then they count off everybody. First it'd be like the 10 people around him. And so every time they said freeze, you're like, where's Palmer? He didn't want it to be you. <laughs> And then he would have to stand there while everybody else is doing push-ups in his place. So the, the point is, is that if that were me and my behavior was causing punishment to everybody else around me, it would mean more to me than if I was receiving the punishment myself. How much more so if every time I screwed up, the drill instructors killed another recruit? How many times would it take before I took a hundred percent of my energy into not sinning? So knowing that the fact that Jesus Christ was killed to pay the penalty of your sins, are you going to rack up the debt again? Or are you just going to accept that payment? It's a big deal and it's very serious. Now, the New Testament uses many terms to describe Jesus' death as it relates to the sacrificial system. Because the point is, is that this, the old sacrificial system of shedding blood for the forgiveness of sins was inherently flawed because it was done through people. And people are, you know, thanks Adam, we're all full of sin. So it, it will never end because our sins never end. We're born into it, but it's a setup and an ideal to explain the concepts when we get to the New Testament and Jesus being the sacrifice for sin. You have to understand the sacrificial system to understand when the Bible starts talking about Jesus in all these weird terms, because if you don't understand that something like saying, hey, we're washed in the blood is just creepy. It just, it's creepy unless you understand what that means is his blood that he was shed metaphorically washes our sins away because his blood was shed to wipe out sin. So his life was given as a ransom for many. It paid the cost to set us free. Our wages we earned was death. He paid that cost so we could be set free. His blood's poured out for the forgiveness of sin. We're saved by the blood. We're washed in the blood. The lamb that takes away the sin of the world. 
is a substitute for our own death for sin. You see how that all, all those uh, little um, uh, Christianese all starts making sense when you know what the sacrificial system is and means. Romans chapter 5 verse 18 through 19. Therefore, as the one man, uh, therefore, um, as through one man's offense, that being Adam, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. That was Jesus, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Adam was the first man. He sinned. We're all sinners. Jesus is the second Adam as he's described. He is the forgiveness of sin. And through him, we are be able to made righteous. Jesus offered himself up on the cross, taking our place, paying the price for sin forever. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14 says this. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Jesus sacrificed one time for all time. The only way we can be sanctified and justified in front of God is through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. First John chapter two, verse two, and he himself is the propitiation, which means appeasement or atonement for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. So I want to set the stage here so you can understand in these verses we're talking about in Hebrew, he's, he's come to the point where he's like, don't you see how much more significant Jesus Christ is as our high priest than any high priest or sacrificial system that you've ever known is. When you read through Leviticus in, in the Bible, you can see how complex these systems were. I mean, you had uh, sacrifices for all these different sins and offerings and there were doves and this time you take two goats and this time it's a bull and this time it's a lamb and it's so complex. Complex, and he's the author's basically saying Jesus is covering that whole thing. He wipes that whole thing out in himself forever. Imagine thousands of years doing this year in and year out, knowing that it's never going to be good enough, but it's only a, a, a band aid until Jesus Christ can come. Now, my third point is this. We follow our pastors as they follow Christ. And the last verse here, Hebrews chapter 7, verse 28, it says, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. God assigns spiritual leaders over his people. People, we see this in the Levitical uh, priesthood, uh, which was ordained by God, but they, of course, were not perfect. They also needed sacrifices for their own, their own sin because all men are flawed. In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 and 24, and this applies to you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being uh, justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. That's one of those verses that uh, we can all at least quote in part. Typically, most Christians can say, hey, we all sin and fall short. Sometimes it's thrown out there more or less like an excuse. Like, yeah, I know I did the wrong thing, but we all sin and fall short. So 
Who are, who are you to poke at me? We all sin and fall short. And, and instead of realizing the significance of the fact that without Jesus Christ, we're never going to cut it. We're always going to fall short. It's not an excuse for falling short. It's an explanation that lets you know you need to have Jesus Christ. But also we tend to take certain people uh, in our culture or society and we somehow exclude them from that category and think that they must be perfect. Yeah, we treat them that way. It, we'll say, no, 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 no. We know all people are not perfect. But then certain people, when they mess up, we like to point it out and make a big deal out of it. Right? But we all need God's redemption. We've all shot, uh, fallen short of the glory of God. That includes Moses. That includes Abraham. Anybody in this entire book, that includes. Anybody that has to come past this, that includes, except for one person, Jesus, thank you. See, we're all on the same page. We're going down the same track. We're all striving to trust Jesus in every area of our life. And we're working towards sanctification. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Christ, more perfected. You're not going to make it, but you're going to try every day. You'll get there when we all get to heaven. It'll be better. But until that point, we're all working towards becoming more Christ-like, of following the principles, of doing what we can, of changing our heart condition. We're all doing that. Pastors are included in that. But this no way negates the spiritual authority that the pastors have. Just because they're not perfect either doesn't mean they don't have the spiritual authority. God has ordained them to have spiritual authority. In James chapter 3, verse 1 and 2 says this, My brethren, let no, uh, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many things. If anyone does not stumble in the word, he is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Church people often think that this means that they are justified in calling out the pastor's mistakes, but are insulated from somebody calling out their mistakes. He's the one held to a higher standard. Don't, don't point at me. I can watch whatever I want on TV. I'm not the one held to the higher standard. Pastor is. Did you see what was on his Netflix, whatever, history thing, or whatever you call it? <laughs> Cobra Kai. <laughs> you know, it, it, uh, it's funny to laugh about, but really, people start to get this mind shift. They start making excuses for themselves, and they start pointing the finger at other people, even though we know they are flawed. They're flawed. But they have a higher standard. What you should be saying is how can I live my life in such a way that takes the burden off of them from following this higher standard? Don't hold somebody else to a higher level of accountability with God than you're holding yourself. Don't point fingers and say, hey, how about them? Point finger at yourself and say, what could I be doing to achieve the standard before the holy God? We all need grace. No one is perfect. But praise God, we have Pastor Matt as our leader. It could be worse, man. I've had some doozies of leaders. Doozies. Because people don't... This is reality. People don't understand what it takes to have good leadership. Read a book. There's dozens out there. I think Maxwell's written like 65, but you probably only need to read like three of them to get the gist. Because there's got a lot of the same things in each one, but... Do some research. Leadership is not just barking out orders and being the one who gets to choose everything. That's not leadership. 
God's given us leaders and a mission, but we need to understand something called the commander's intent. There's many people who are looking for spiritual loopholes to avoid being accountable for their sin. And they say things like oh, particular things not mentioned directly in the Bible. Well, Jesus never said anything about that. If it was that important, why isn't it written in the Gospels? Jesus never said it. I don't see this specific thing. You can't tell me that texting whatever is wrong because it's not in the Bible. Which is dramatic, but fill in the blank. There's a lot of things that aren't specifically addressed in action in the Bible, but are exclusively and implicitly addressed in action in the Bible. It's clear. When you read the Bible, there's things that are very, very clear in there. The, the Greek word, uh, uh, the meaning of this Greek word is slightly different than what you say it is. So, I don't know, all 100 translations of the Bible got that one wrong? In 2,000 years, 100 different translations, uh, scholars, everybody got it wrong but you. And all of a sudden you figured out that this word, if you change it slightly, it might mean this and then your sinful lifestyle is okay? Congratulations, you figured it out can't believe none of us caught that before this. People do that stuff all the time. You can get on the internet and find whole websites and whole genres built on. Here's two words that we think meant something different in the Hebrew than you think they mean. Boom. It's unlocked. Ready to do something else with it. Second Peter chapter one, verse three says, and his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who had called us by his glory and virtue. What that means is you have everything you need as a believer in Jesus Christ to live the life that God is calling you to live. You do not have an excuse. You have everything you need. You have the Bible. You have the Holy Spirit. You have all that you need to live a godly life without trying to poke through and find a loophole for why you don't have to do something or why you do need to do something or an excuse. That's what that verse means. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means it is in the Bible. Your situation, your sin, your question is answered in the Bible. It's not set up like the internet where you could just type it into a search engine and some verse pops up and say, you know, you have to read through it. You have to understand what God is trying to say. You have to understand what Jesus was here for. You have to understand the intent of what's going on in the Bible. It's there. Some of these issues that we have today are so clearly spoken about in the Bible. So clearly in many, many places, it's explicitly talked about those type of things. Yet a lot of us, some of us, maybe you, hopefully not run around with this idea that somehow the exact wording didn't appear in there. So all of a sudden you're off the hook. Fill in the blank. I mean, it, there's so many of these things and uh, we're so smart. It's, it's like if we would spend the amount of time and energy researching our way out of being accountable for sin, if we would spend that energy researching how to be stronger Christians and more devoted to the Lord, we'd be so much better off. Every single thing is not dictated in the Bible for you to nitpick, but there's plenty written so that you can understand what God's intent is. And what God desires of you. 
The commander's intent is a concept where basically, um, so you got a boss, right? So at work, I got a fire chief. I got a fire chief. I'm a captain. I got firefighters that I lead. I know what the fire chief wants. I know what his rules say. I know what his SOGs and guidelines say. I know what he says. I know the direction he wants to head. So that's his intent. So if I have a question about something I'm doing at work, I don't have to go to the fire chief and say, hey, fire chief, here's a specific scenario. What would you like me to do about it? He's like, well, you know what direction we're going. You know what I want. You know how I solve problems. Go make life happen. So I can operate as a captain underneath the fire chief, essentially speaking with his authority to my firefighters. If they disobey him, me, they're disobeying him. I'm operating under his authority as the next level down as a captain. I'm not a chief, but I'm speaking with the authority of the chief. Uh, the firefighters have to listen to me. Now, the commander's intent means that I don't have to ask every little question to the commander. I know what he wants. I know how he thinks. He's written down all his rules and regulations. I go forth and make stuff happen. And what's interesting about that too is I want my firefighters to do the exact same thing. Whenever I work with a firefighter, I always sit them down, new firefighters. We have a lot of new people. So um, people through all areas of their life have run into different types of leaders. Maybe it's teachers or principals. Maybe it's drill instructors. Maybe it was the military. Maybe it's their job. Maybe it's the second shift night supervisor at McDonald's. It's like they modeled after that leadership because that's all they know. Wherever. They're here now. They need to understand a different model of leadership. So I sit them down and we have discussions because... Uh, I work out in um, uh, northeast King County out by Ames Lake. Basically, I'm about 10 minutes from the closest fire station. If I go on an emergency call, it could be between 10 and 15 minutes before the next people show up. So it's the three of us. It's Captain Alexander, my driver, and maybe some firefighter who's only been working for a couple months. That's it. Solve some problems. I do not have the luxury of calling up the chief and saying, hey, this is what we're running into. What can you do for me? And I don't have the luxury when I'm jumping off the rig trying to do my job to have some firefighter going, captain, captain, what hose do you want me to pull? Pull one that shoots water, man. I don't know. I'm busy too. There's only three of us. So I give them the speech. I would say, hey, okay, we just drove up to a fire. You got fire blowing out the uh, on the A side, first floor A side next to the door. What are you going to do? And they, they always do the same thing. Yeah, I know. I'm going to tell you what to do. That's what you want. But what if I don't tell you what to do? What are you going to do? I jump off the rig. I run off. I'm doing a lap around the house. What are you going to do? You're going to stand there? Are you going to stare at me? No. What do you? Well, I mean, I... There's a fire right there. I'm going to pull off a hose, pull it to the front door, right? I mean, yeah, you know what to do. You know what the intent is. Front door tactics, just do it. I said, well, what if you're wrong? What if you're wrong? Uh, I don't know. I guess we'll just do whatever you tell me to do then. Exactly. You understand my intent. Pull a hose, put some water on the fire. If you're wrong, I'll say drop that hose, do something different, and we'll go do it. It's not that complicated. But here's the trick. As the leader, I'm flawed. I don't know everything. I'm not going to make the perfect call. It happens sometimes. Actually, it happens quite a bit. So I got to coach my people on, what do you do if Captain Alexander gets it wrong? Because <laughs> it's important. 
So I talked them through it because so many people have been raised under a leadership style where when the boss says to do it, you do it, and that's it. You don't ask questions. You don't say, I don't understand. You don't say, I don't think that's going to work. You don't say that doesn't seem safe. You just do it. I cannot afford that in my line of work. If you see something that's unsafe, you need to stop me and say, that's unsafe. This is what I see. And I could do two things. I could say, yes, I see that too. And I've determined that it is safe. Let's go. And you say, okay. Or I'll go, oh my gosh, I did not see that. Do not do what I just told you to do. But I'm not going to get you in trouble for helping me out by holding me accountable and helping me know what I'm supposed to do here. They know that I'm the boss. They know they have to do what I say. But I have given them permission to work with me to make decisions. And so this is how I look at it. Let's say uh, my firefighter gets up and he just does the, the, he does what he thinks I want. Because we've talked, we run through scenarios, whatever. He does what he thinks I want, and I'm going to look at it, and it's going to be like this. I'm going to look at it, and I'm going to say, is it safe? Will it work? Then we're going to do that. I'm not going to say that's not how I was going to do it. I'm going to say, well, it's going to work, and it's safe, so we're just going to do it his way or her way, and then we're going to go back after it's all done, and we'll talk about style points. We'll talk about what could have worked better or why, but... I'm not so, uh, I'm not so, uh, conceited in my leadership that things have to go exactly my way. But on the other hand, if I call a play and my driver goes, Oh, no, 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 what you really should do is something else. I'm going to say, Is it safe and is it going to work? Then why are we, why are we arguing about this? Just do what I said. I'm the boss. It's safe and it'll work, right? So we work together as a team because nobody is perfect. They have permission to hold me accountable. Ultimately, I'm in charge. I have the higher standard on me. And the only caveat to that is, is if I give them an order to do something that violates written guidelines or disobeys the chief. Because you know what? Ultimately, they're following the fire chief. I'm his intermediary. I'm his voice, but if they're going to do something, if I'm going to cause them to stray away from the standards and the chief, then I'm wrong and they don't have to listen to me. Yeah? Jesus is the fire chief, the pastor is the captain, and we are the firefighters. You may not always agree with the plan, but does it match up with scripture? Does it meet God, does it meet God's plan for our lives? Then we do it. Doesn't have to be your way. Luke chapter 10, verse 16. Jesus said, he who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Jesus had the same principle. He's like, I know God. He's my father. And he's telling his disciples, you know me. You know my intent. If they won't listen to you, they're not listening to me. If they reject you, they're rejecting me. We follow the pastor as he follows Christ. This isn't blind submission. I don't know where this idea comes in, in Christianity at all, or in life, that somehow you need to be blindly submitted to what somebody else is telling you to do. That's called a cult. If you were ever encouraged to blindly follow something without ever the opportunity to say, hey, I need to understand this better, I don't understand, then run the other way. That's not how leadership works. That's not how Christianity works. Nothing should really work that way. 
That's not how it works. But our ultimate allegiance is to Jesus. He is appointed a pastor over us. If the pastor doesn't follow Jesus, we don't follow him. That's how it goes. We don't follow a person. We follow the office. Pastor Matt is our pastor. We're following him as he's following Jesus. When If he were to cease to follow Jesus, then we would no longer follow him. That's how it works. And he knows that. He's not going to lead us in the wrong way. But it's what's interesting about it is that, um, so I give my people permission to correct me. And so I don't want to, when they try to correct me in the field, like one time I was driving down the road and we're going to an emergency and my firefighter, after I gave him the speech about having permission to, you know, uh, be a part of the decision-making progress, he process, he's just chop, 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 chop. And I can't even think. So I turn around and I say, stop talking. And then I turn back around and I'm trying. And you know what? He wasn't upset at all. It didn't even come up later. He was totally cool with it because he knew when it's time to talk, you can talk. When I say it's time to stop, you need to stop. <laughs> now there's a appropriate time to give feedback and an inappropriate time to give feedback. Let me tell you about preaching. The inappropriate time to give feedback is directly after the sermon was delivered. <laughs> it is. It is. It's not the time to say, well, you know what you could have said. Well, I'm not really sure that what you said was right. I mean, I heard a sermon last year that said something different. Great. That's not the appropriate time. Another not appropriate time is Monday because that's the pastor's day off. But I will tell you this. If by Tuesday you still think it's very important to, to uh, do this correction, then by all means call him on a Tuesday. And let him know. And that's you've had a chance to think about it. Is this really important? Is this just a preference issue? Do you really feel like some kind of scriptural premise was violated? Because, you know, honestly, if he said something incorrect, he's going to want somebody to bring it up. Do you think he wants to go down the wrong road? Because I'll tell you what, I have this tendency as a follower when I don't like my boss or they're going the wrong way. I have a tendency to be like, I ain't, I'm not doing that. And I just want to stand over here and go the other direction. I have to remind myself as a leader, you want people to grab you and pull you back from the edge. And say, I think there's something going on here. That's what I want from my people. So why would I not be the person who would do that for others? And you know, it goes for your brothers and sisters in Christ too. If you see a brother or sister in Christ going down the wrong road, don't just throw up your hands and say, I don't want to get that on me. Say, no, what are you doing? Come back from that. That's wrong. Let's talk this through. You need some correction. Because we're a team here. We all work together. We need each other. Pastors need you. You need the pastors. It's how the system works. Okay. So let me wrap this all up by saying that y'all need Jesus. Jesus is the chief. He's the commander. He's the ultimate high priest. He deserves all the glory and respect and submission and obedience. And this should be taken seriously. 
It should be taken seriously. I know for me, it's super easy. Uh, you know, when I prepare messages like this, it's good for me because then I have to evaluate my own behavior and my own thoughts. Uh, before you come up and preach to a bunch of people, you should have taken a moment to kind of figure out where you're at with this. Is there anything you need to reconcile in your own life? Do you need to ask for forgiveness for anything in your own life? Otherwise, you may, in fact, burst into flames when you come up here. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to find out is the thing, but... Um, but sometimes I fail at realizing the seriousness of obedience to Christ and submission in all areas of my life. It's easy for me to say that I'm better than they are, or uh, I'm not making the mistakes that they're making, or, or I'm better than I used to be, which none of those things are good enough. None of those things equal sanctification. None of those things is where Jesus wants you to be. Jesus wants you to be perfect as he is perfect that's the pursuit now it's interesting um part of my testimony is uh, i grew up in the methodist church methodist church um and it was fine you know but it's very um it's kind of uh, kind of a by the book kind of thing. Like you get your felt boards, you learn all about Jesus. You have the stories, you know who Zacchaeus is, you know Matthew the tax collector and all this kind of stuff. You know the stories, you know who Jesus is, you know what he did, but you aren't encouraged to have a relationship with Jesus. Now you may catch that along the way. I'm not throwing out stones towards the Methodist church. I'm just saying the system's not designed to teach you. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. It needs to be a, a reaction, a transaction. You repent, you turn away, he forgives you. It's just, uh, you know, um, John 3.16 and stuff. And, and so anyways, um, we went through that all the way up into high school. In high school, uh, we went to a church that where the youth group was like church with young people in it. Like it was full on, like charismatic, like uh, people spoke in tongues and, and it was like, you need to get saved right now and gospel messages. And, and I remember the first time we sat there just like, like, like the picture where the wind's blowing on you. You're like, oh my gosh, like I never knew any of this before. So you get saved and everything's great and you're, ah, you're kind of 50, 50 and you know, whatever. Right. And so then about, I think it was about 18 or 19 years old, um, after all this, I knew Jesus. I had a relationship with Jesus. I wasn't walking in his ways, at least in public, and more so like a church. You were Everything's great because you're a youth group and we're all part of the team. But then after that, it wasn't. And maybe you understand the feeling. And so I really wasn't living my life for the Lord. I really wasn't acting like I believed it, although I did believe it. And so I remember one time after a night of sin, I think it was pretty late at night and in the middle of the night, maybe one or two in the morning, I was sitting there in my car. And I remember saying to myself, I just said to myself, do you really believe what the Bible says is true? Do you really believe that if the Bible says it's the truth? I was like, yeah, man, I really do believe that. I'm having this conversation with myself. I really do believe that. Yes, I do. Do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Do you believe that he's the son of God and your savior? Do you really believe that? Really? I was like, you know what? I really do. And I said to myself, then you need to start living like you believe that. And that's, that's when it all pivoted. I got rid of a lot of things in my life. I got some new things in my life. And it hasn't been great. Everybody has their, their problems and their moments and their seasons. But that's when the upward trajectory started. That's when everything changed. So as we close tonight, I need you to ask yourself, do you believe what the Bible says is really true? Do you believe it? 
Do you really believe it? Do you really believe that Jesus is who he says he is? Is that something that inside you say, yes, I absolutely believe that. Because if you say yes, and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to repent of your sins and start living like you actually believe it. You need to. No shame in it either. Because everybody in this room is either having that same feeling like, no, I really need to live by it. Or they're saying, you know, I'm really glad I'm living by it. Either way, you're in the same boat. Welcome to the club. Everybody should be living by it. Everybody should be acting like it. But if you aren't a believer in here, and you said yes to that, then you need to give your life to Jesus Christ today. How could you sit one more moment, one more day, knowing that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, and knowing that everything in the Bible there is true, and not make that commitment to give Jesus Christ your life? Why don't you bow your heads with me today? If you're a believer in here, and you believe that this is all true, and this is today was a message that made you feel convicted, then you just need to repent. You have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Jesus is right there with you. Just repent to him and change your life tonight. But if you're out there tonight and this is the, the, the first time and you want to give Jesus Christ your life, you finally you just say, I really do want to give Jesus Christ my life. And I believe it today. I really truly believe he's my savior. And the forgiveness of my sins can come to me if I believe and I repent. And uh, that you believe the Bible is true. And you want to give your life to Christ today. Why don't you just raise your hand? I want somebody to pray with you. Give your life to Jesus today. Amen. Amen. So I will invite you, if you would be, feel confident, if you really believe it, to come up front and have somebody pray for you. Just walk up here today and have somebody pray for you. I mean, no guilt or shame, but if if you can't stand in front of the, the church, then how are you going to stand up in front of the world? We love you, Jesus, so much. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, just... We just give you so much honor and praise. We take you seriously. Lord God, I thank you for your word today. I thank you what you've given us, Lord Jesus. And I thank you for your eternal and ultimate sacrifice as our high priest, Lord. In your holy name, amen. Amen. Hey, we want to thank you so much for being online with us today. I want to remind you, if you're not a follower on Facebook, please like our page on YouTube. Please subscribe. Follow us on Twitter. Tell all your friends. Continue to watch online. We thank you for watching. We love you so much. Have a great day.